Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Oh, sure. Um, first of all, thank you, Robbie, for letting me uh, come on. I looked at um, the inventory you have, and I'm, I'm happy to be included with the uh, the population you have. My name is Dr. David Christopher. Uh, currently, I am a lecturer at the University of Leicester in the city of Leicester in the UK. Uh, my official title is Lecturer in Popular Screen Cultures. Um, and so I've done a lot of work in uh, some of the fields that might be of interest to your listeners, and hopefully we'll have that conversation today. Can you tell me about some of the fields or give me a couple examples of things that you're interested in speaking about? Well, you know, a lot of academics uh, build their reputation, they build their identity often around relatively limited silos uh, or disciplines. Um, and I went into film studies sort of uh, through a very bizarre or at least unorthodox um, vehicle uh, direction, trajectory of study. So I started with an economics degree um, out of Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Um, and then I got an honors degree in English, which uh, English, of course, uh, in Western culture generally means literature, even if it's translated literature, it often refers to the, the English canon, largely out of the UK and, and as far back as ancient Greece, but um, literature. And then I got a master's degree in theater history. And then I got a master's degree in film studies. And then I got a, my doctoral degree in cultural studies uh, of media and film. So just my uh, historical trajectory of education has, has brought me through a wide range of uh, different perspectives on cinema. I've worked on apocalypse cinema significantly from traditional cultural studies, and I've introduced anarchist theory into the analysis of film, um, sci-fi more broadly. I've done some work on theater and its collisions with film, Shakespeare in particular, uh, dystopia cinema, um, certainly uh, giant monster cinema, which participates with the apocalypse cinema, a lot of work on Star Wars as it happens, um, and significant work on Canadian cinema are amongst the fields I would foreground, I think, that uh, I might consider myself able to contribute to a conversation to. I would ask about anarchy cinema first, and then at some point we're going to have to talk about Star Wars because I have a buddy that will be listening to this. that like, you got to talk about Star Wars right off the bat. But anarchy cinema, like where, where exactly like, – what do you mean? Can you give me a couple examples of anarchy cinema? Well, first of all, I have to delineate categories here. So, so there's what might be understood as anarchist cinema, and then there is, of course, anarchist philosophy and anarchist theory – um, as a vehicle of interpreting, as a context for understanding film. Just the way, for example, uh, the Birmingham School, and before that, the Frankfurt School, significantly applied Marxist theory to understanding um, all film uh, in many ways, or, or all art in general, but certainly film. And so you could take a Hollywood blockbuster, uh, which has nothing to do, which would not be identified as a Marxist film in any significant way, 
Um, and yet you could use Marxism to analyze it. So there's two categories here. You know, you take a film, for example, like um, uh, uh, Parasite or uh, other work by um, that director, uh, like uh, Train, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Snowpiercer, or a movie like In Time. These are clearly movies about class disparity and the alienation that they engender. And so they might be considered Marxist films, except that they, they generally tend to be resolved happily, which would not be a, a Marxist film from that perspective. Um, and so in the same vein, uh, you know, I need to, again, I need to be clear. So I can talk about anarchist cinema, but that's actually um, not really what I have, have done. I've used anarchist theory in conjunction with apocalypse theory to look at films. But there is um, really great work. So there, there, Richard Porton has a text called Film of the Anarchist Imagination. And James Newton has a text uh, um, called The Anarchist Cinema, building on Alan Lovell's much earlier 20th century work called Anarchist Cinema. And they examine films that they posit as anarchists. Now, some of these films have been made by um, openly identifying anarchists. Other of these films have been pigeonholed or they, they have been qualified as anarchist films. So if you take, uh, you know, one of the, the most famous examples is um, Louis Buñuel's and Salvador Dali's um, Un Chien Andalou. And just uh, reference to the, the Andalusian population has anarchist resonances. And it's been identified as an anarchist film. And when I did a course at the University of Victoria called Anarchist Cinema, I actually screened uh, Bunuel's Exterminating Angel, which again was traditionally considered sort of a Marxist thing. The, the, the bougie um, crowd are, are basically uh, of their, their own psychology. They get trapped inside a dinner party and as resources, and they can't leave, but there's no reason they can't leave. They just, for some reason, sort of a twilight zone -y reason, they're unable to leave and they eventually start tearing each other apart. Um, and I use this as an example to compare, for example, Marxist cinema. And then you've got movies uh, like um, Hour of the Furnaces by Solanus and Gatino, uh, which are gen generally considered to be a third cinema or radical socialist cinema coming out of South America. It's anarchist in its own right. You've got some movies that are uh, about anarchism, or at least about the behavior of anarchists. Um, Is Snowpiercer really an anarchist film, Snowpiercer? No, I would say it's not. Okay, because I'm about to say, because when it comes to class, I'm about to say, when I watch class, like uh, films like that, that really depict class, and that kind of gets chopped into the whole conspiracy film where people start eating bug bars and things of that sort. But when I see films like that, and I've seen a couple of them that kind of have this display that kind of show class, I think there's even a new dinner film movie out where it's like the rich that are, end up eating the poor at some point. Yeah, yeah, with um, with uh, um, the guy from Glass uh, Onion. Or Ray no, 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 no. I'm spacing it's on Ray that. It's Ray Fines, isn't it? I don't know the guy's name. It's, it's, it's brand Ray new. Fiennes. It's in theaters right now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Ray Fiennes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Ray Fiennes. There's always been that kind of culture of like there's always the high class or the rich that get everything and then the poor end up having to sacrifice something. I think I, those are just seem like normal films. I don't. I mean, would you depict – those would fall under like a Marxist category? Well, I mean from the perspective of Marx's most significant contributions to theory, which is delineating class disparity, um, you know, if you, if you take Marx's corpus as a whole, it would be 
um, very difficult not to find a film that doesn't resonate with some of his observations. I think that that his, perhaps his most important contributions to theory have to do with um, uh, you know taxonomizing or articulating the mechanics of capitalist culture. Now that's global. It's certainly 20th and 21st century. And it's definitely the technological environment out of which all cinema emerges. And so, yeah, I mean, if you take, you, you could take any film and find a tenant, but certainly a film that is foregrounding class disparity um, would be probably considered Marxist from, from uh, the perspective of that's one of his most important contributions to theory. But on the, the same time, he, he argued that the, these mechanics of things like commodity fetishism and reification uh, of the, the uh, consumer system or the market system being normalized would eventually collapse into class consciousness, where the working class would realize their exploitation, uh, and then they would, in some sort of conflicted revolution, rise up. Um, and so uh, I think that there was an underestimation on Marx's part of just how powerful these things would be. Uh, capitalism has proven very protean. Uh, commodity fetishism has, has proven uh, very psychologically uh, powerful. Certainly it's globally normalized now. Um, and rather than devolving into sort of a, a, a dialectic class factionalized conflict of, of this nebulous working class against this nebulous bourgeois class, which is just not really how society is organized, um, he predicted that this would eventually lead to revolution. Whereas we see in these class movies, like, for example, In Time, a great film, fun to watch. I loved it. The, you know, the, the, um, the techno fetishism and the... Um, uh, the makeup fetishism about nobody aging beyond 25 years of old, the, all of the uh, the eugenics involved in, in it that it's it's critiquing, great. But eventually, it resolves into a Bonnie and Clyde romantic pair bond, and, and this is quite contradictory to what Marx would have predicted. So it's not Marxist in that perspective. Uh, same with a movie like Blade Runner where you have the uh, autonomized working class set in uh, direct opposition to the very decadent corporate class, and you have the repressive state apparatus of the Blade Runner uh, working in between them. And again, how is it resolved? Uh, at the end, one of the members of this working class, the Rachel Android, um, is again, it collapses into a romantic pair bond where they simply escape the suffocating city uh, into their their romance. And so uh, we, we get a lot of this, uh, typically these dystopic films, they're classist, so they're they're Marxist in that they're for, not classist, um, they're classificatory. And so they're Marxist in that regard, uh, but the way that they resolve them might not be Marxist. So, you know, I wouldn't say every film is Marxist. Uh, There's I a lot of evidence that, to support it. I mean, look at Ready Player One as a good example. I mean, they had the bagged CEO corporate guy trying to find the three keys to rule the whole thing and make it his own and then sell it and advertise. That's a real thing, though. Like, I watched that movie not super long ago, but maybe five or six months ago and kind of watching it because, you know, VR is starting to become a part of our daily life for a lot of people. There's people, you know, Metaverse, I think, was big at some point. It seems like it died off a little bit. But when watching Ready Player One, I mean, they're putting ad blockers in everybody's face and marketing. I'm like, well, that's exactly how it would be. And then there's just one hero and the hero happens to be a kid that just wants to make it free for everybody you know no purchases or paywalls and all these things and that's entering more of the digital age where you have kids now that are spending more time on their digital devices um 
because that's a great way to connect with friends, especially if you don't have a car, if you don't have a bike, if you don't have any of these types of things. It's easy for them. And that is real things. Like, I think that depicts the times too. But also, I mean, did you think that people in the beginning when they first made films, do you think they were really trying to satisfy an entertainment aspect with their audience and it somehow has diverged to now more of influencing the culture? Because there's a lot of films you can watch that would give you kind of like an anarchy or like kind of this like screw it all capitalism mentality, which is, I mean, that's Zombieland. I think that's why people like zombie films too. I mean, there's no, you don't have any rules. Tallahassee's favorite rule is you can there's no more flushing you can go into the bathroom in any toilet that you want i mean it's not a good one to live by if you've ever seen zombie land that was his mentality but that is there's no government forces there's nothing like that the only thing you have to really do is govern yourself and then watch out for zombies so there's like no laws there's none of this type of stuff so so much there robbie right. that i, I want to <laughs> comment on um so let, let me try and parse everything you've just asked about um chronologically so first of all um, you know, this idea of intentionality, did, did these early filmmakers, first of all, er, early, the earliest filmmakers were not necessarily trying to um, make entertainment uh, from the perspective of narrative. So narr Hollywood has normalized film as narrative entertainment. When in its earliest manifestations, it was, it was a technological phenomenon. You've got uh, a guy named uh, Gunning who wrote a text called The Cinema of Attractions. And he was talking about how early cinema for its, its technological innovation, its mere spectacle of the moving picture, it was associated significantly with like vaudeville. So it was part of a uh, an ensemble show. You'd have some dancing, maybe you'd have a um, person doing the uh, ventriloquism, uh, then you'd have a bit of film, and then you'd have, you know, so it was, the, the spectacle was not the narrative per se, it was the the technology of the moving picture in and of itself. And, and the obvious example here is um, the films of the Lumiere brothers, who became early examples of documentary. They were just filming people leaving a factory. They, they were filming a train, uh, the arrival of a train at Lashiata, and they were presenting this to audiences who were thrilled. They were fascinated, but there was no you know, traditional narrative to it. Then you get Melier introducing things like um, special effects. And, and you know, it's, but this, this more broadly, this is a discussion about intentionality. And, and you know, this is how ideology works. Again, another important contribution from Marxist theory. Um, one of my mentors, Dr. Leanne McClarty from the University of Victoria, she said to me, you know, this question of intentionality is, is almost irrelevant if you understand um, the mechanics of ideology and normativity and cultivation. Um, she always said to me, don't trust the art, uh, the artist, don't trust the artist, trust the art. And this is what interpretation is about. We look at the messages that are being uh, presented in a film and whether or not these filmmakers intended Marxist or anti-Marxist or pro-capitalist or anarchist uh, philosophy. Um, you, ideology is, as Zizek tells us, as Marx tells us, it's profoundly unconscious. And so um, uh, there's another theorist named Green who said it would be astonishing not to see representations of unconscious ideology in cinema um, from that perspective. So that's one. Now in terms of of you know anarchists in film, you're right. Uh, they have generally been. Porton makes this argument. They've generally been cliched. He calls them the bomb throwing beardy weirdy. 
Um, and they're they're always misguided, even from a Marx. So not just from a, a pro-capitalist perspective, but even from a Marxist perspective, anarchism has been sort of turned into a pariah, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of merit to anarchism in um, sort of revealing the shortcomings of Marxism. Marxism tends to be uh, uh, what Leotard would call a grand narrative, all-encompassing, whereas anarchism, you know, sort of suggests that there's more nuance to the social fabric here. Um, maybe there's not just two major classes. A person can um, transcend these classes. A person can be a working class on, on one scale. For example, university lecturers uh, tend to only have their labor to sell. That would make us a uh, working class by Marx's definition. And yet on some level, we have social capital and cultural capital. Um, and so anarchism tends to foreground uh, the more nuanced conflicts in society that go beyond the economic determinism of just we're all being exploited. And, and another problem is this cliche, uh, which in this movie, Ready Player, well, what a great example. What, what a, a postmodern uh, uh, acceleration of the cliche of the, the evil corporate guy. This is not new. The movie Tron did it. You can go all through history. There's always a big evil corporation. But we have to ask, when you've got an institution like, for example, Hollywood, which is uh, perhaps a paradigm example of uh, the co evil corporation. Um, what, what can we glean from a film that makes a bad guy out of the corporate leader um, coming from these huge corporations? And what we have to look at is, is the nuances here. And this is what anarchism would say. The simple evil corporate leader, that just doesn't exist in, in, in humanity. You know, Elon Musk doesn't get up in the morning and sort of, you know, with his mustachio and his, his uh, plutocratic top hat, how am I going to exploit the working man? You know, he thinks he's a good guy. He thinks he's doing good things. Pe people, I don't think, get out of their bed evil. They just do evil things. That's that's humanity. And, and so to just turn the working class into heroes and the uh, um, capitalist class or the corporate class into villains, it's too easy. It doesn't speak to any solution for society. It's just hedonistic narrative. It works in the way that Noam Chomsky would suggest it's a distraction. So rather than have us actually thinking about um, the, the social politics that, that we might want to engender some change within, um, it's just, we're, we're just being distracted. We're being fed commodity in order to critique commodity. Movie like, uh, um, uh, what's this one with Jim Carrey? Uh, the Truman Show is a great example of this. And, and so, again, I think we need to, to cast a more critical eye. I love this movie, Ready Player One. But again, uh, you take a, the head of a huge uh, media franchise, which we might call Steven Spielberg. So not the person, but the franchise that is Steven Spielberg. Yeah, we've, we've got a narrative about the corrupt corporation and, and the, the, literally the stacks of working class people in the urban sprawl. Um, coming from a guy who's basically feeding us nostalgia for his own blockbuster films. Do you, do you, I mean, do you think that like the public would like maybe even notice it if it was like a, a blanket template? Like you, we look at like there's always a hero in society and there's always a demon in society. It's always one person. It's all, it's never just the whole issue. Like if we talk about ready player one, the one bad guy running the corporation, like as soon as he's out of the picture, the corporation is just going to go to a new model or they're going to be good. And everything's going to be reversed. It's just that one bad thing that you have to cut off, but it's always that in every single film, whether it's horror films, there's always one, it's always just one force, one opposing force. And that could be like a group of people. And it makes me kind of like question, like, can we identify a real, like we talk about social problems or if we talk about like just a, a problem you can't see, it's not just one person, it's a whole bunch of things. 
but we're only good with a mentality of one, I feel like. And I've just started to kind of notice that a lot. Like, even if, it, you know, you said some scandal happened today, someone would want to know who was behind that scandal. I'm like, it's the whole, it's the whole system. The whole thing is messed up. You just gotta, you gotta talk about it all. Like I talk about this with the intelligence agencies, digging through the past and then kind of looking through like a lot of the history that we know about the intelligence agencies. People go, well, which one out of the intelligence agency? Is it the director? Is it, the it's the whole thing. The whole system has been running like this for a long time. You get stuck in an echo chamber. You don't know you're doing bad anymore. So then everyone needs to be kind of talked to, but people can't see that. They just want the one opposing force. I mean, that's even like that with our superhero movies, the newest Thor, Love and Thunder. They had the one bad guy, then they had Thor on the opposite. And it could be a team of good guys, but there has to be one opposing force that is the guy that's antagonizing or getting everybody, you know, riled up throughout the whole entire movie until he's defeated at the end. And it's like, what about like, I've never seen really a movie that has given like an overall force that you can't see unless we talk about like, um, bird box i don't know what that was they're still an opposing force but you just couldn't see it and then you just saw sandra block blindfolded the whole movie which was okay i guess um but th there is that i mean you would would you agree in saying that if i'm wrong correct me that's fine no i, you know, I think you're absolutely right and i think there it's it's a it's a valuable observation first of all um you know one of the, the questions you you posed at the beginning can people see this um yes you know this notion of the the third person effect, it's called in media studies, where uh, we know that advertising is BS, to be quite honest. We, we know that it's feeding us that, you know, if you buy this uh, um, blender for your kitchen, life will be happy for everybody in your family. Uh, it's normalizing family life. It's normalizing pair bonds. All sorts. And I don't think people are fooled by it. Um, I think, you know, so from a Baudrillardian perspective, so this is Jean Baudrillard now. Um, you know, some misinterpretations suggest Baudrillard was saying people can't tell the difference between media and uh, reality. And, uh, you know, that might be closer to the truth today now that we, we're literally swimming socially in our media, as opposed to it being sort of a social manifestation outside of reality. Um, but I, I don't think he even intended to mean people can't tell the difference. Uh, the message I take away is that people don't care. People don't care, um, but I don't think anyone is fooled. I think they, you know, when you're young, you want to believe in some of the idealism and altruism and utopianism of these films. Um, that's, I think, an ideological problem, but you're absolutely right. So, you know, reducing, so this is, this is a typical narrative MacGuffin. You, you can go through history and look at stories and mythology from pretty much any culture and broadly, the, you know, what, what, I know that the, the hero's journey, the hero with a thousand faces has been criticized for being really Western centric, and maybe it is, um, but you can look at, at um, narratives coming from largely any culture, and you're right. They are reduced to A or a group of heroes and A or a group of villains. Um, but this doesn't mean I think that people are fooled into reducing the world's problems. You know, there's always a, a large amount of social problems that are displaced and narrowed and um, into a container. And often this container does have an ideological function. We're, tell we're, we're being told in the Truman Show, for example, to be afraid of reality television, but not to be afraid of media at large, just to be afraid of reality television. And so it's narrowing, it's focusing our attention. It's that old uh, agenda setting adage for, for media, um, you know, journalism and media, they don't tell us what to think, but they do tell us what to think about. And I think that that might be 
an interesting function. Um, but from a narrative perspective, first of all, there's nothing wrong with stories. Everybody loves a good story. That's why we become film scholars. That's why we study English literature, because we tend to love a good story. I think this is a human characteristic, regardless of the cultural inflections of story from any given culture. And the exigencies of storytelling, and certainly the exigencies of filmmaking, you can't pack reality into a two-hour representation. And so you end up getting stereotypes and you end up getting reductions where one corporate guy is the representation for all corporate evil. And it's reductive. And that is problematic. But I don't think people are fooled. I just think they don't care. They want these stories. We, we hunger for these stories. And it, it becomes um, an old debate in media studies between, you know, the, the sort of uh, subversive ideological function that media has in normalizing social relations, which might not be beneficial for everybody, at the same time that it does serve a social function. There's nothing wrong with people being entertained. One argument is that entertainment is a distraction, taking us away from genuine political concerns. And the other argument is that humans love entertainment. And so is this really a bad thing? Um, if I love my job, for example, if I don't feel alienated in my job, and I go home at the end of the day, and I want to watch a movie with um, my partner, is that such an evil thing? Um, and maybe it is from, from a more nuanced perspective. Maybe it's not from the, the sort of uh, entertainment uh, perspective, but maybe it is from the perspective of what are the messages that we're getting from entertainment that are flying past the radar of the audience member um, and that are normalizing things that should not be normalized. Uh, um, Joshua Bellin talks about sci-fi. Oh, it's just fantasy. It's just fantasy film. And yet we have all sorts of stereotypes of uh, what, what have come to be called uh, visible or ethnic minorities, problematically set in contrast generally to the category of whiteness, um, being represented by aliens or monsters or giant gorillas. And, uh, you know, oh, it's just fantasy. Yes, but it's a fantasy that is subversively normalizing a certain set of uh, assumptions about who is bad, who is good, who should be saved, and who should be punished. I don't know if that even answers your question, Robbie. I'm just, it was a it was wow. a good one, though. I like that. Um, <laughs> I had a, I got a couple of questions. One's on the Truman Show thing. Is that really being afraid of reality television? Because to me, it just looked like a whole entire thing of like this is what happens when you have schizophrenia and you kind of just get really really paranoid. Like people are watching you, and then you're kind of in your own show. And then it turns well, out this it is was the true. dreams thing again. You're, you're talking about the dreams thing again, and so that's an interpretation. And, and this is a perfect example where you're demonstrating that the audience is is not entirely duped. I mean, we can see through some of the constructions, the artificial constructions, good guy, bad guy. I would say that's a reasonable interpretation as long as you're looking at it as metaphor, as long as you're looking at it as allegory, or you're looking at it as dream. So this is all a construction of his mind. He's a paranoid delusional. None of this really happened. But if you take the narrative on a literal level, he is being trapped inside a uh, city-sized reality television set. He's being commodified as a human to the point that he's not even being told that he's a reality television. And he does reach realization. And he leaves. And when he sees his wife's photo and that she has her fingers crossed when they're getting married and kissing, I was like, oh, my God. Like, to me, I was like, holy, I would never even analyze a photo that closely to be able to tell that. But he did. Yeah, but think about it. If you've been living in this artificial world all your life, you might. And, and you know what, Robbie? I'm not sure I buy that. How many times have you been 
sitting in a waiting room for the dentist whose appointment is always at 3.15 and you arrive at 3.10 and appointment only works for the person getting the work, never for the dentist. You get, you get into the office at 4.15 and you end up noticing every detail in the room because there's nothing else to do. I, I don't think we, we are not that observant. If you've been trapped as long as the character treatment, so there's a lot of contradiction. There's no way he couldn't have known. Well, and there, there's a lot of uh, deeper exploitation. There's always a, an altruistic or idealistic assumption that underpins the construction of a narrative. Take in time, for example, again. What happened right before in time? The opening line of the movie is, I, I don't know how it happened. It is what it is. I don't uh, have time to worry about it. To me, that's the laziest writing in the world. It's just sort of, you know what? We're not going to give you any exposition. We're not going to tell you how we got here. We're just going to drop you Medea's rest. Here you go. Um, but it's the same. How could he not have begun to be suspicious? Think about when you were five years old. Did you never have any suspicions about things? And sometimes those suspicions turned out to be right when you were... Uh, in a relationship and maybe there was some infidelity going on and and uh, your partner is gaslighting you into believing you're paranoid and then you find out after the relationship ends oh i was right um i bet he was looking at details mount rushmore was too small the ring was on the wrong finger um i i get well that's the that's the crazy thing about it is like there is a, a realistic fear in there and that is is like when your illusion your illusions become shattered um, when you kind of like your life is going fine. I mean, every day, I think we all kind of fear this inside is like when something changes and it might ruin your kind of whole routine in a sense. I mean, you could say that even with the pandemic, when a bunch of things started shutting down, our routine got th thrown off. I mean, there is this realistic fear is like, yeah, you're alive today. You don't really notice it. You don't pay attention to it. But what about tomorrow? You know, tomorrow is not guaranteed. And like even with the Truman Show, I mean, when he's doing the same thing every single day, it's like Groundhog Day. And then he does something different or he notices something, then he can't stop. And then he starts digging and starts realizing everything's a fake thing. I mean, even if we take it to like Groundhog Day, he was getting so insane with the same routine. I'm like, that's most people's lives. It's the same exact thing every single day. Their comfort zone is the guy that they don't want to talk to coming over to them and then trying their best to get out of a conversation about 50 yeahs into the conversation or 20 okays and 30, hey, I got to go. Um, but those are, those are realistic things that start happening in people's lives. And then when something gets thrown off, off balance we just it's a panic for a lot of us I'm, i panic like that too i mean i was watching the truman show and i go oh my god imagine you know something just goes wrong whether it's a glitch and that's what gets into like the simulation type thing that everybody relates to with the truman show is what happens if you step on that crack and you just can't stop stepping on that crack and then the next thing you know your whole entire life has to change and that's a realistic fear for a lot of people absolutely uh i agree and you know th this is Again, one of the, uh, depending on your perspective, um, one of the merits, or at least one of the interesting phenomena of, of media in general, but visual media, cinematic media, narrative media in particular, um, is that it, it does invite us to identify. Um, and, and this goes back, you know, you mentioned, uh, again, talking about dreams. Um, what, it, there's an old adage now that says uh, there's only um two groups of people that still take psychoanalytic theory seriously and both of them are film scholars and, and, and uh, there's the old you know lacanian mirror stage which is often touted as um the foundational theory underpinning our understanding of how we identify with um fictitious characters 
has been a lot of problems. I just recently published a, a piece on horror video games. And in many ways, the discourse on horror video games was trading um, on this perspective um, on the mirror stage of how we identify. But I think identification with characters and narratives is far more complex than just I see myself in this character. There, there's a lot of I wish, there's a lot of wishful thinking. I want to see myself in this character. And um, more than that, you know, video games, for example, really reveal the, the weaknesses here when they start talking about, well, we can identify with characters physiologically through the joystick by uh, what's called agency. And I think agency is a misnomer. I think it, it's interactivity is really what it is. Um, but, but this idea of identification is complex and it's one of the joys, it's one of the pleasures of cinema. Whether it's a cinematic narrative in a video game or a cinematic narrative in its more traditional form, just unfolding as you're a passive receiver uh, of it in, in a movie theater or on your television at home. Uh, but again, these identifications uh, can also be very problematic in, in that they can be highly normative uh, and they can be exclusionary. Who, who is being excluded? There's, there's a great essay, again, another foundational film studies essay by Laura Mulvey from the 1970s. And she talks, problematically talks about how um, film, classical Hollywood cinema is, is basically um, invites exclusively the white heterosexual male to identify with the active hero. And uh, for somebody who identifies as cisgendered female, um, the only characters for them to truly identify with are passive uh, female characters who are always in the service of the male hero's narrative. Now, this is problematized in a number of ways. Um, you know, my my now 13-year-old daughter has been enchanted of these um, Marvel films, as many young people are today. And not the ones that a theory like Mulvey's would uh, in insist she should be. So, so Captain America, or no, Captain Marvel, because that was female, um, or Wakanda, because Wakanda was, uh, um, uh, it was made ethnic in a certain way in its, in its presentation and its reception, and there's a lot of female heroes, or in um, this Black Widow character, but those aren't her favorite characters. You know, her favorite characters are Iron Man and Spider-Man. I mean, in the names of these characters is the word man. And um, so this doesn't quite speak to it. So, so I think what we get is the fact that, that uh, and then horror, horror film studies did a great job of this, talking about how, um, again, from a largely psychoanalytic perspective, in our culture, women are generally invited to slide in their gender identities, whereas men are generally made homophobic. Um, in their gender identities. And so it's easier for a female spectator from this theoretical perspective to identify with different gendered or differently racialized characters, whereas, um, according to Moby at least, the white male is kept in his silo of identifying with the white male as active uh, heterosexual hero. Um, and so both levels, you know, the, the joy of identifying with characters, the joy of transportation. Why do we cry when we watch a movie? Well, it's not because, uh, as Christian Metz would say, because we have lost sight of the fact that it's, it's fiction. I don't think this movie is real, but it's because we have dropped the censor to the point of allowing ourselves to be drawn into it. And this is, this is what's called transportation. And if we can 
emotionally respond empathetically to characters that we know are fictitious based on uh, melodramatic music or our sympathies with the narrative, then I think we need to cast a very critical eye on how powerful these narratives can be in telling us what should be normal coming from huge corporate powers. And that's that's too much power, in my opinion, and we need to be wary of it. But I don't think everyone's fooled by it. When I started recently kind of learning about like the gender and all that type of stuff involved into films and, and I, I kind of started to pay attention more to it when I rewatch a film now, I found my t- like I, I find that I not really soak up the information of just watching the film anymore. I'm kind of over analyzing it to the point where like when I get done with it, I have a whole list of things that they obviously did that they could obviously either change or things that they implemented that could be good or could be bad. But then I don't really remember if I was actually paying attention to the film or not. You know what I mean? Like I, I used to go into films. I used to just before all I learned about like the gender representation, and all these type of things. I used to just go to a film and just if I liked it, I liked it. If I didn't, I didn't. I mean, I, I like most films. I like Green Lantern and everyone. Even Ryan Reynolds hates that film and he starred in it. But when I started kind of paying attention to it, I noticed that I did start to kind of notice like the whole gender normalization thing of like, you know, you put a gender role specifically, like usually the main character happens to be a white guy but he's like either a billionaire or you know he's isolated he's got a lot of problems or something like that but it is like what happens if i'm not like obviously i'm white but imagine someone who's watching this who wants to be batman i mean does he only get to be batman when batman puts the suit on and it was kind of like this question of like how do we get people to identify and then we have the immortals that came out and there was a whole bunch of people that were all different races and things and that's great because then now you have a bunch of people and you're giving a uh, bigger open to star cast and everything like that but it's just interesting because i never thought to even look at that in a film before for, and I'm sure probably in a whole different perspective for another person that might not be, you know, me or just a different race or something like that was probably thinking all the time, when are they going to make a certain character this or a certain character that so they could identify more with that. I mean, that's to me, that's like you don't really understand the cultural impact of the film until you really kind of analyze it from that aspect of things, too. That's those are great observations, Robbie. I agree with all of that. Um, again, you know, uh, I do just want to watch someone get their head crushed, though. That's all I want to see. And Doctor Strange, too, it's the only reason I like that movie was when Black Bolt's head exploded. was like, like, that's one of those. I got up in the theater and I literally said, like, the F word. And then everyone around me is like, looked at me. I was like, I've never done that in a film in my entire 25 years. So just that's inappropriate spectatorship in Western culture. But there's places in the world where that, uh, you know, a Rocky Horror Picture Show, you'd be expected to do that. Um, You should watch Cronenberg's. not dead ringers, uh, uh, scanners. There's a great head explosion scene, one of the first ones. Um, and I think that, uh, again, so Joshua Bellin talks about the, this contradiction, this tension between being aware of perhaps some of the socially alienating ideological effects that cinema might have and loving these films. He talks about the uh, deeply embedded racism in the original 1933 King Kong, which is his favorite film. And he talks about, you know, um, being aware of my position in a society doesn't mean I have to self-loathe, but I can see what's problematic about a representation at the same time that I'm able to appreciate it for entertainment. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And yet um, I remember I was teaching, I was giving a lecture again at UVic on, on, um, the cultural implications of the Star Wars franchise. A student comes up to me afterwards, and I have a big Vader tattoo down my arm. I mean, I'm unabashed. And the student comes up to me afterwards and, and approaches me and says, wow, um, Dr. Christopher, you really hate Star Wars, don't you? And my response was um, um, measured. I said to the student, I, I said, let's just say I have a lot invested. 
And I couldn't help but think about what, what Joshua Bowen was saying. Um, and one of my own mentors, uh, a guy named Mitch Perry, who, who's probably one of the best film studies uh, university instructors on the planet, so inspiring. He told me at the beginning of my career as a film studies student, he said, you'll know you've become a real film scholar um, when you start to hate movies. And he was he was being hyperbolic, of course. He, he was, but the point was, yeah, uh, I've had friends ask me after I started studying films, you know, can you see the movie anymore? Can you be transported or do you always see uh, the frame of the screen? And I don't I don't think these are mutually exclusive. This, these are, this is not a binary. You can do both. But yeah, I tend to watch a movie and sometimes I'm fully transported. I'm not thinking about it. And other times for even the same movie, I'm thinking more critically about the cultural representations, what's right and wrong. And I don't think this takes away from my enjoyment of the film. Um, I think that this enhances my enjoyment of the film. So I, I can have this hedonistic pleasure of just being transported and maybe it appeals to me more because I am a middle-aged white man, sorry. Um, and maybe it appeals to other people less, but I then see my young daughter also really enjoying these films. Not to say that, that people aren't alienated by representations that are stereotyped or, or unfair. Um, and then uh, by, the, by the same token, that's a hedonistic motivation. It's pleasure, it's distraction. I can have uh, what are called eudaimonic motivations, where I'm enjoying a movie for more intellectual reasons. I don't love every movie. I think you're you're quite... Um, generous there, Robbie. Uh, good for you. Um, I don't love every movie from a hedonistic perspective. There are movies I find really boring. Um, there, there's a, a classic uh, black and white movie called Vamp Vampire, uh, Vampire from the 1920s. And um, it's touted as this, this genius masterpiece. I can't even remember off the top of my head. I should, as a film scholar, I should know who it was. Um, and every time I watch it, I find it really boring. It, it's what a Simpsons character might refer to as, you know, Euro trash. Um, but then when I started studying films, I started to learn about some of the innovations with framing, some of the first person perspective when he's having a dream about being in his own coffin. It's, it's quite horrifying. Um, and I watched the film again, and I was able to really enjoy it from an intellectual perspective. Same with Blade Runner. So I'm from the Star Wars generation. I saw Star Wars, and I loved it. It was the I was seven years old when the first book came out. It was the best thing that ever happened on Earth. Um, and then afterwards, even though it came out later, I watched the movie 2001 with my father. And uh, I remember saying to my dad, even though I was 10 years old, I said, well, there's two and a half hours of my life. I'll never get back, Dad. Thanks for wasting my time. And then I watched um, uh, another um, space movie that that just bored me to tears, and it was only. Uh, and then I watched Blade Runner. What about Spaceballs? That's a sci-fi movie. Th there you go. But that's that's Star Wars though. But that's and it's satire, so it's comedy, not not necessarily action. Then I watched Blade Runner, Harrison Ford. I'm like, oh, this will be just you know, it'll be uh, it'll be Han Solo, and I hated Blade Runner. Blade Runner and 2001 are now probably my two favorite movies of all time. And how can this happen? Well, because I learned how to appreciate a film for other reasons than this straight identificatory transportation. And so, Robbie, I think you're you're very uh, typical. You're very talented in, in having these things natural. I had to be educated to do them. But there's a guy named William Brown who talks about this generation of film goers. And when I say just this generation, I will broadly refer to people in your age category, which I know is unfair, but nevertheless... Um, and he basically says film studies are obsolete. 
They have to reinvent film studies because all of this inter Marxist interpretation, the subversive ideology and these no messages of normativity, audiences today are savvy to that. They don't need a film scholar to be doing this interpretation for them. And I don't agree with him entirely. I think that uh, Marx's what reification and commodity fetishism and uh, false consciousness, for example, I think they've taken on protean forms in the new media formats that we have. Uh, but I think you're right that we can be both things now. We can be critical of a film and love the film for that reason, and then be hedonistic about a film and not like the film at all. So good for you for being able to do both. According to William Brown, everybody your age can do both. I had to go to school to do both. I um, there's I I kind of come from because I've made a couple of my own films. I'm actually making one right now as well too, where I kind of notice like camera angles and things of that sort that kind of get me hooked in. Even when just normally watching it without trying to analyze anything from it, I always just notice different camera angles, which kind of gets me intrigued the most. I found myself as I got older to, especially from doing the show after the past couple of years, just diving into more of documentaries because I wanted to learn more things about films. The problem that I have when I do have a problem with a film is when they fantasy it up a little bit. And when I mean that, I mean like the new MK Ultra film that came out. Now I know the historical roots and the documentation. I've seen the documentation. I have it saved on my computer because I'm interested in these subjects. It really kind of, you start to notice things. Maybe I'm overpicking it. I've said it and I've kind of openly talked about it, but an MK Ultra was using LSD on people that were unwitting to what was going on. Well, the film they did, it was like, guy was getting a lobotomy and in the middle of the lobotomy they cancel it and they go we're gonna load him up into this lsd program so he doesn't have to get a lobotomy i'm like that's not how it went that's not how it went at all it was a forced well they didn't force people but they unwittingly gave them lsd and watched them through it's a it's a whole other thing but they kind of turned it into more of like a lighter version and then you could take the same thing with the fred hampton assassination i've spoken to his lawyer um who's represented his family who's dug into the research jeffrey haas amazing guy and then plenty of other research independent scholars that have looked into his death to see that he was brutally brutally murdered by chicago police but you watch the film, they made Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers like waving their guns, pointing them at each other and really screaming at each other. And it, that was there's so much about COINTELPRO that they did not include in there about the government influencing the Black Panther parties, making them get really paranoid and crazy. But they made Fred Hampton look like a thug. He was 21 years old and got arrested for stealing ice cream that he was handing out to children of youth. So it's like they made him seem like a guy that was stealing people's cars and cursing and smoking and drinking and threatening to kill everybody he meets. That's not true. And I got upset about that because that's not historically accurate. And it's like somebody that was trying to – and that's altering history because how many people are going to look up the actual assassination of Fred Hampton, do the independent research, go through all the documentation that the FBI and Chicago police has on it, do the interviews, and be able to understand the real story about who Fred Hampton was? And then they go and see a film instead, and they go – and I, that was the Judas and Black Messiah movie. It was not, and not good in my opinion. I think they let the government off way too easy for what we know about what they did to the Black Panther Party, but – I mean, that's to me is a big problem because you got to look at my generation, younger generations. It's hard to get people to care about last week. Now you're trying to get people to care about something that happened 1963, 1970, something like that. You have to do it right. You have to do it accurate and you can make it balanced. I don't care. It's what I'm trying to do with the film I'm working on now, but I'll even give you a better example. JFK by Oliver Stone. Fantastic movie. Now coming from someone who has spoken to Robert Blakey of the HSCA, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and plenty of other research scholars, uh, five different people from the ARRB, the Assassination Records Review Board, declassifying documents. I get upset at the movie when I watch it. I think it's a great film, but you didn't need to fantasy it up. 
because that there's an issue. Now, what's the real historical count of things? There are things that were added in it. And I'm not going to – Oliver Stone's a great filmmaker. But coming from someone who actually cares about the historical event, I watch it now and I go, dude, you, you didn't need to do that because now people are going to start running off like that's factual information, and it's not. And that distorts a little bit of what history and what the person stood for. So from that point, I started to get a little bit more into the documentary phases, and I thought society was doing that as well too. But there's this two branch off, and I think at this point now, it's probably more in with the side that they everybody goes, it's a film. It's not supposed to be realistic. And it's like, there's a lot of my friends that believe that, and they will not watch a documentary. They won't watch anything that happens to do with anything that even represents anything political. Even in Doctor Strange 2, when two mothers come on screen, my buddy goes, everything gets got to get political. And I'm like, I, I didn't notice that, but okay. But th there's like, he's overanalyzing it and he's taking it in a bad reception because there are people that have just gotten sick of the way society is and politics being shoved all in their face. And that's not, I'm not saying that film is doing that. I'm just saying to them, they're so sensitive to everything now where that becomes a problem. And I'm like, we got to find some aspect of going, films can represent real things in society. It's important that they do so because they can also infect not only social change, but they also make you aware of problems. It doesn't need to just be a documentary to do that. Marvel films, anything can really do that. But also we've now got this group of people that seem to be the majority now where people go to a film and they don't necessarily want to have any connection to it. They'd rather it be based in another time period if it's 200 years in the future, 300 years in the future, or set it back in the past to where it's history. It doesn't even need to be real history. It can be altered a little bit. And for me as someone that, you know, I like watching things that have some type of knowledge in it. I, I don't think that's rude or wrong, um, but that's not the majority of things. And that's when I start to kind of have like a little bit of a balanced issue when it comes to um, films kind of misrepresenting not only people in a way, but also misrepresenting historical things that you could just go by the documentation. It'd still be interesting, but that's Hollywood. People say, oh, that's Hollywooded it up. I was like, no, I don't care what it is. It's not right. Hmm. This, um, you know, this is interesting. Your the example of your perhaps um fictitious friend who you know sees two women in a romantic situation in, in a movie and oh why does everything have to be political um and this is this is typical of the the critique of of wokeness the critique of wokeness they call it where everything is political now but um you know i think any uh, scholar worth their salt will, will admit all art is always already political because we're humans everything is political on a fundamental level and you know this person wasn't concerned about everything being political when the political representations aligned with their sensibilities. So in classical Hollywood, when every female was available to a man or even a beer commercial, everyone was heterosexual and most people were white, wasn't political to them then. But now that there's representations that go outside of those normative levels, now it's political. Well, both were political. One was just comforting to them, and the other one is uncomfortable to them, and so they're calling it out. And this idea of fantasy, it's exactly the argument that Bellin was making, displacing things into a distant future or a, an artificial past is, uh, it's a distraction mechanism. A um, guy named Benedetto Croce, basically a paraphrase of his argument is all history is contemporary. And what he means is we interpret and reinterpret history through the ideological lens of the day. And so a movie made today about something that happened in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or something that will happen in, in the future is, a, is based on the political sensibilities of today. And this can go right, right down to, to simple historical fact. A lot of people think 
that in ancient Rome, all of the uh, statues, the bodied statues, are bleach white. And when you no, see a movie about ancient colorful. Rome, they're all bleach white. When in fact, we know historically these were painted in vibrant colors, mm. but this is the norm. And and again, um, and you know, you were talking about- Well, you uh, had a better example of the Spartans. You know, a lot of the Spartans were gay, right? That's, that's a real thing. Yeah, because you'd fight better if you had a lover, if you were fighting for your lover rather than fighting with a, a combat warrior or someone that is your friend or something like that. But do you think I could, I mean, I would, I would push back on, I think when people identify movies, I don't really think people do that with horror films. I know we all go like, who are we going to be in the horror film? I got called many a times. Uh, the guy, if you ever seen Cabin in the Woods, or is it uh, the stoner kid? Everyone says that was me. I don't even smoke weed. So I'm like, why am I the stoner? Like, you just say some odd off shit sometimes, and it makes everybody laugh. And I was like, like fantastic. So I die third in the movie. This guy made it to the end. I was so happy. Uh, yeah, you survived. With horror films, I feel like people don't want to identify because you know it's always going to be bad for somebody. I mean, Final Destination is a great example. I don't usually you pick your, everyone sits down, they go in a movie, they go, "That's going to be me," or "That's going to be me," or "That's going to be me." Not in Final Destination because you know everybody's dying. It doesn't even at the ending they always do something like that. So, I mean, what do you think about identity in horror films when it comes to representation? I think um, I think that, that so there, there's first of all there's a, there's a whole raft of research on identity. I already mentioned some of it. Linda Williams does some. Carol Clover has probably published uh, the paradigmatic essay on that. Uh, Linda Williams did one called "When the Woman Looks." But um, no, no, I I can't agree, Robbie. I think that um, for example, horror films actually. Uh, there's emphatic identification. So first of all, they're they're quite pure melodrama. There's a clear villain who is absolute evil, needs to be destroyed, and there's a clear hero. Usually, uh, according to Carol Clover, the cliche is the final girl who is often less sexually active than her friends that got killed off early. This is the, at least in the slasher cycles. And using um, the affect of anxiety. So, so when we think about affect, which, which is a significant way that, that uh, movies um, can impose their messages onto us, we become emotionally involved, um, add anxiety to that. There's a, there's a lot of researchers, I think even psychologists would agree. You know, you might remember in high school, the course you got uh, the highest grade in, but you probably also remember the course you failed. And this is because negative energy also generates affect. And horror films are take this to an extreme. And all you have to do is, you know, you, you can get involved with the characters in a movie and maybe cry during the movie and then turn the movie off um, and not care at all anymore. You move past it. But but horror films tend to generate cult audiences who are in, in one breath, they're rooting for the final girl. And in the next breath, they're rooting, especially if it becomes franchised and the, the villain becomes an antihero like uh, Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger. They become icons in their own right. And the next, they're, they're rooting for the shark in Jaws. Um, and they take this well beyond the movie experience. They can't wait for the next movie, which is just a reiteration of the same story again with some different characters. Why? Because they uh, are so maybe hedonistically, but they are so deeply identifying with these characters. Again, it might be some wish fulfillment, but I think the identification is profound. And this is the very problem. Uh, Makita Brotman talks about the way that um, horror film can be very subversive, either for its normative elements. And by the way, I wrote a whole paper on how uh, um, Zombieland, how it's the, the worst realization of the zombie 
Why? Um, uh, history. Because of the fact that it's the most entertaining one ever. And I can talk about that if you want. It's because Woody Harrelson's perfect in that role. His dad was on the grass, you know, his dad said it. I don't um, believe it. <laughs> but but this is just it. I, I think that and so Makita Brahman was saying that we we uh so the subversive elements that are, for example, subversive to um bourgeois uh happy, happy, joy, joy. Um a lot of the time, uh, it, this went under the radar. So it can be very uh, conservative in its reproduction of uh, social uh, politics. You know, generally, a virginal girl is the one who survives for that reason. Usually, the slasher was some sort of child abused or, or sexually confused male character. Um, and, and she makes the argument that, that it wasn't even considered important. It was the old low art, high art divide. This is irrelevant because it's just trash film. Well, because of that, it was able to sneak a lot of subversive messages and subversive politics into it. And Zombieland, you know, you look at the history of zombie films, um, generally scholars agree that the zombie, uh, particularly because they're very human, but they're taboo. So it's it's this this uh, uh, Freudian clash of the living and the dead, the upright living. Um, it's the only time we accept cannibalism too is when zombies. Cannibalism, another taboo, just like the incest taboo, a lot of taboo for sure, which is one of the reasons they can be made into monsters and we can make them look ugly and rot and all that. But uh, zombies are perhaps the other than the slasher, the most human. I mean, they're not a blob. They're not a giant shark. They were literally used to be humans, even within the narratives. Um, and so we see in some of the more progressive zombie films, we see all sorts of disenfranchised identities, just like aliens in, in movies like Star Wars, all sorts of disenfranchised identities being poured into the zombie. And the zombie films show an anxiety about normative society being attacked by these others, these other identities, and how horrifying that must be. Um, and then you get in the Baroque phase. Uh, so when you look at the phases of art, uh, Fossilon talks about the phases of art in the Baroque phase. Zombieland is very much the Baroque phase of the rising zeitgeist of zombie narratives, where um, the guilt of killing a loved one. You know, zombie narratives that are progressive, they tend to show, uh, take District 9, they show the loved one becoming a zombie and the anxiety of having to dispatch your child or wife or husband or uh, best friend once they become a zombie. Zombieland turns dispatching the zombie into a, a prurient, I love shooting zombies. I love killing these things. And even the opening montage of Zombieland, it shows all of these identities, an exotic dancer, a mob uh, guy. A working, a, a working, there's even a James Bondy guy. Um, and, and the movie then even celebrates in both of the movies, it celebrates the zombie kill of the, the day. And I get that it's satire, but this is the problem. People say, oh, you're offended too easily. Okay, I'm not offended. I love the movie because it was entertaining. But this entertainment joy we take in dispatching these things as monsters without observing the social identities that are being poured into these monsters is problematic. The zombie kill of the week, the one with the piano lands on this, this poor, and, and it becomes poor, poor fat bastard. That's hilarious. I have family members that, that suffer with uh, being overweight, and they think it's hilarious. And this is part of the problem. You know, you don't need to be offended for people on their behalf. I'm not offended. 
I'm observing the stereotypes that are being normalized here. And I'm not, I'm not running to saying, oh, we need to ban these films. No, I love zombie films. But but you my argument is that Zombieland is the most reactionary, least politically progressive zombie film ever made. And it's doubly problematic. What does it say about our culture that it's perhaps one of the most entertaining zombie films ever made? You're exactly right. I love the film as entertainment. But as social politics, we should be very afraid. <laughs> I, uh, I've seen I, recently. I saw that one and the second one. Um, I rewatched them. They are really good films. But I, I kind of took a different approach to it when I did. I made a list of things, and the fat thing was on there. Even when you go to the grocery store, he's looking for a Twinkie, and he says, "Look at this big hoss. Let me take a little bit off the top." And they talk about these guys really let themselves go. Yeah, there's there's red flags. I started to notice when I was actually like looking into it. But also the the trope of the uh, Tallahassee's character. This guy that's like, you know, manliest man that there ever could be a man. I mean, he sprays uh, perfume on Columbus or no, Columbus sprays perfume on him. And he goes, you smell like a little girl or something like that and sprays him with the perfume. And then he goes and gives him like 40 percent power with a fist punch right to his. But Columbus is like everyone's bottled up anxieties all into one. He's like, how did this guy survive? Well, he played it way too safe. But that trope of the Tallahassee character. Now, I like it because it's Woody Harrelson. But I'm, you could examine, I mean, have you ever examined one of your all-time favorite films, one that you were kind of shocked maybe to learn that there were a lot of tropes or a lot of things you started to notice that maybe you didn't agree with now? I did that, but just because I knew I was going to have you on, but I did that with one of my favorite movies, which was The Big Lebowski. Now, I would give that probably a D minus rating if you were going to talk about progressive or things of these types of sorts that wouldn't go with any of these tropes or these styles of things. Mostly because, I mean, Maul's a feminist. Um, you could say that. She paints art naked, but it does exploit her body in a sense, and it kind of tackles more of a different perspective and kind of a usual way they display women in films, which is obviously things I'm noticing now, now that I'm actually paying attention and looking for them. But also, I mean – Donnie, then there's Walter, he's from Vietnam, and they're making fun of his PTSD and his war type stuff. But it's still my all time favorite movie. I mean, I have my degrees under the latter church, uh, saint of dude, dudism. So, I mean, that's one I've seen it millions of times. I love that film, but it is something where, yeah, that has a cult following as well, too. But there are basic tropes that are, I wouldn't say dumb slapstick comedy, but there are things that are in there that are ingrained that have been throughout many different templates for films that have been this stereotypical style of what gets us to laugh, whether if it's certain gender norms or certain things of that sort. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and Big Lebowski, I think, is a good example. Um, I also love Big Lebowski. It, it's a greatly entertaining film. But in terms of, of this recognizing in it troubling representations, um, is, I think we need to make a distinction between straight uh, narrative uh, and parody and satire, uh, this is an important distinction because the same narrative as parody, like, for example, Zombieland, can be, I think, socially, politically problematic. Um, but if it was satire, and maybe it is, there's another interpretive level. But I think that, that you know, Big Lebowski, so first of all, not only the, the female artiste character, um, every character in the movie is a hyper stereotype 
not not a stereotype that might exist in a narrative, which again, the exigencies of filmmaking, you only have so many characters. And so in order to get the right social dynamics to have a story, you have to have stereotypes. But uh, it comes out of the gate. First of all, it has a narrator in the mise-en-scene. So right away, you've got this bare from dunce effect, it's called, this alienating effect where you're being reminded perpetually that this is constructed narrative. And right away, we get introduced to character types. So the gung-ho, gun-toting um, Vietnam uh, vet who's obviously got some PTSD and other things, um, the sort of the loser, wimp, sidekick buddy, the stoner who is effectively a nihilist himself, even though he accused the German nihilists, um, the uh, the feminist artiste, weirdy, cultural weirdy in, in uh, the character you're talking about, the corporate leader and um, his stew, so the other Lebowski and uh, the, the great actor who plays his uh, sycophantic stooge, his yes man. There's not a real person, even identifiable, even the narrator, who comes in as this sort of a... It's Sam Elliott. You can't complain. It's Sam Elliott. Yeah, I mean, his Sam voice Elliott, is like... But this no. bizarre spaghetti Western narrating sort of sitting, talking to the dude. He asked for a sarsaparilla at the bar, which is like, that's from West, old Western movie. <laughs> um, but, but again, you know, these stereotypes presented as normative is one thing. These stereotypes presented as satire is another so the same representation, the same stereotype under the conditions of satire can be very progressive. It's a movie pointing out how ridiculous this narrow bandwidth of understanding a person is, whereas a movie like Zombieland, which again is replete with stereotype, the white macho, uh, who's white macho guy, the, the Woody Harrelson character, who's entirely attached to commodities. The whole role would be great again if he gets a Twinkie and he celebrates when he gets a gun and a big vehicle. He is the stereotype of, of American uh, commodity gun culture. And then you're right. Then the the sort of the, the wimpy just wants to have a relationship, push the hair behind her ear character. And then the two uh, female characters, also stereotypes uh, reduced in their convenience to creating a romantic pair bond in a normative family. But these are being presented, not the, the movie is a parody of zombies, but it's not a satire of these social relations. In fact, it normalizes a, a singular conception of the white American family. Macho father figure, the Bill Murray character is killed off because he represents a grandfather figure that, that was uh, doesn't fit within this. The marriageable, she's referred to as a marriageable female partner, the young girl who needs maternal guidance, and the um, the the America loves the underdog hero husband character. Um, there's nobody in that family isn't white. Nobody in that family doesn't um, satisfy generic categories of normativity outside of the bourgeois American family. And so this distinction between satire and parody is hugely important when we're talking about whether a stereotype, a representation of stereotype um, can be considered progressive or whether it's, it's reactionary. If we never uh, satirize or parody stereotype, then they become invisible and that's the problem. So we, we have to be, uh, but again, by creating a satire or a parody of a stereotype, to what extent are we just reproducing that stereotype um, in the in this critique of wokeness that we talked about. When you uh, present to um, 
two characters uh, who identify as the same gender uh, in a romantic relationship um, in a situation that it just seems contrived. To what extent is that effort to subvert the normativity of heterosexual pair bonds, to what extent is this obvious, almost ostentation representation of a different uh, type of couple, to what extent is that actually reproducing the normativity of uh, the category of heterosexuality? It, it's so any movie does more than Wait, one thing. Was that the Doctor Strange example? Uh, so I think you gave one. Okay. I'm thinking yeah. about. Um, I'm rewatching. Because um, my Will buddy also will not watch a Mel Gibson film because of what happened with Mel Gibson all those years ago. And I could tell you, I'm a Mel Gibson fan. I don't literally care about. I, obviously, it's a horrible thing he did, but I think he's made up for it. But I just love his films. His newest one out, where he's on a radio thing, fantastic. I haven't seen it. Also, there's a Christian movie he played in with Mark Wahlberg. Don't go see it. I don't recommend that to anyone. It's Father Stew. I'm not religious, but that was like a movie to go like. The dude becomes a priest because he gets a terminally ill thing, and then throughout the whole entire movie, he's trying to be a priest, and they won't let him, and then right at the end, he gets to become a priest, and then he dies at like 45. I turned to my buddy. I was like, what the fuck are we watching? And he was like, you don't like this? It's Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson. I was like, I don't care. This is a horrible film. This just ruined my Saturday. Think about uh, Signs. And I love signs. signs. Oh, my God. I love Signs. Yeah, it's a great movie, and it's great satire. On the satire level, certainly the Joaquin Phoenix character steals the show, in my opinion, um, notwithstanding the the huge plot holes. Uh, there's always a joke going around Facebook now or these other social media. Why would an alien species that uh, finds water deadly invade a planet that's 90 percent water? Um, but again, on, on what a lot of people don't notice is the the Christian normativity of the film. He's lost his faith. And the movie Mel Gibson concludes with him rediscovering his faith because they thwarted aliens. Okay, so a lot of things don't add up, but nevertheless, I think it's the same sort of thing um, that you're talking about, for sure. M. Night Shyamalan has a, a good one out. I think it's called Bones, or is it... Oh, I'm, I'm blanking on it. It's about a beach. It was relatively new. I think it came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's about uh, everyone gets trapped there and ages too quickly or something like that. Yeah, that's, that a, yeah, yeah. that's, a, that's a really good one when you really analyze it. I mean, I'm from a, um, I, I work at a gym facility, and everyone you meet at a gym facility usually has some type of body dysmorphia or some type of body issue. Even big giant powerlifters have like a really big kind of complex with that as well, too. And watching that film, like, I mean, I have body dysphoria, so when I watched kind of that film, it was real to me to be like, oh, this is like what we do to ourselves when it comes to being obsessed with our looks, being obsessed with this fact of never aging. It's why there's a long history in our not only in our history, but I think in all of humankind of trying to find this thing of immortality, whether it's a vampire movie or whether it's something of trying to prolong their life out there. And this film kind of, I mean, represented that. I think I had a bunch of friends that I went to go see it with and everyone was talking about, oh man, imagine if I was on that beach with my shoulder pain or I was on that beach with my arthritis in my heel. And then like, there's a bunch of those crazy things where like, everyone's like, like, oh my God, like, yeah, we wouldn't probably make it if we're going to put ourselves in these characters. But there was an aspect, I mean, that even showed some gender, th uh, not gender things, uh, race things as well too. The older man that was getting a little bit senile towards the ending and he pulls a knife out at the black guy that's on the beach because he thinks he sold something the guy's like what are you talking about it was because the guy looked like a rapper he had all grills and everything in his teeth i mean there was a lot of things that that movie highlighted when you kind of analyze it down but the overall moral thing is like what i would ask you which would be the the takeaway in a film the overall message that can kind of expel out all these negative things that they kind of put into it as well too and i think at the ending of that film i think the moral question of that was the aging thing 
um, you know, this whole aspect of we're all going to eventually get to that point where there's going to be nothing left and then we're gone. I think that was a moral tone of that movie. Grandparents and the visit of M. Night Shyamalan. And yes, I'm going to just list off a couple of M. Night Shyamalan movies, but turns out it wasn't the grandparents and there was this insanity aspect of things like what happens, you know, if you have grandparents that get older or if you go to a stranger's house, what can happen to you like Hansel and Gretel type situation? Or you have something that has more of a positive effect, like you talk about JFK, the film. The ending of that movie was write your congressman about these documents that were sealed, and that established the Assassination Records Review Board that initially has been declosing all these documents really stopped in 98. But that's a powerful message at the ending of a, a film, a Hollywood film, of just being like having enough people get so motivated and moved afterward where they go and do something afterwards. I mean, very few movies are like that, and there are some in the bads. I've talked about that on the show too before. Lone Survivor is a great example. That is a sign up at your local recruitment office. That's exactly what I wanted to do right when I saw that movie. Um, but that was a propaganda film in that aspect of things, and each film has a different impact where after the movie theater, as long as it makes you feel something, even it gets you to think. I think is the overall goal that a, a director should have. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I, I think that that's true. Um, certainly the, the films that uh, culturally we celebrate, even though the celebration of these films has been problematized uh, in hindsight by different sensibilities today about gender inclusion and uh, um, racialization and things things of that nature, identity politics largely, it's, it's come to be reduced to. Um, but these films also often have uh, messages. And again, uh, this, this mentor I talked about, Dr. Leanne McClarty, um, when I started to be critical of cinema, she said, we need to remember, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So you take a movie, like for example, uh, The Birth of a Nation, um, which was incredibly racist, in its depiction, but on a formal level, most cinema scholars agree that it's an important historical document, first of all, because it was so racist, but also because um, there was all sorts of innovation in filmmaking that occurred within it. And so you have a super racist filmmaker, a super ideological filmmaker, um, doing things that are important to the narrative of film history. And so, uh, you know, we need to disentangle what's good. You talk about the takeaway of a film. I'm troubled by that because um, a film, any narrative, it, it, the reception of it is, is highly subjective. You can identify a dominant theme and a person that's not thinking critically about it just for, for receptive reasons um, is probably going to be um, enchanted of that dominant theme. So there's a theorist named Stuart Hall. He's from the Birmingham School, one of the, one of the most important cultural theorists probably in the discourse. And he uh, he talks about, again, it's, it's a bit limited, but he talks about three ways that audiences decode messages on an ideological level. So one of them is, is the dominant message. So this would be the message that coincides with the normativity and the ideology of society, pro-consumerism, et cetera, things like that. It's the message largely intended by the political interests behind the production of a narrative, whether that be a director or a production company or what. Then the other side of the spectrum is an oppositional decoding, he calls it, an oppositional decoding, where we, uh, we see a movie like Zombieland as absolutely uh, socially alienating. 
that, that it's, it, you know, I, I, it's not um, a feel-good comedy parody of the zombie genre. It's actually a socially alienating narrative of normativity that we should be wary of. That's an opposition reading. And then in the middle, he talks about a negotiated reading, where bits are taken of the film that sort of align with the dominant reading, and uh, but we might have reinterpretations. We might even rationalize those interpretations um, that are a little bit more oppositional. And I think the takeaway or the dominant theme aligns with what he would refer to as a dominant read. But I'm not entirely convinced that that uh, everybody or even most people necessarily um, are just duped by the dominant interpretation. Um, I think that you're right. There is such a thing as the obvious message or um, the, the generic takeaway, uh, the significant theme, these adjectives are significant, et cetera, are relevant here. Um, but I think that you can take any film and uh, it, it's, like, uh, it's like economists, that, that old uh, cliche about economists, you put four economists in a room, you're going to get 12 opinions. Well, you put four viewers into a movie theater and you're going to get eight interpretations. It's the same thing. Um, so, and again, I think people are aware of the takeaway and uh, I think they either take it or leave it, uh, to be quite honest. You know, you made mention earlier of, um, of uh, this idea I wanted to circle back to this. I know I'm 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 refocusing what we're talking about in the immediate moment, but you had talked about um, the documentary problem. That there's two things I wanted to discuss with you, or I wanted to raise. Um, you know, you so one of the issues was you became frustrated or you disliked a film that wasn't loyal to a a source uh, material. One of them might be the historical record, the documentary historical record. One of them. Another one of them might be um, a literary source. So how how loyal was Harry Potter to the original movie, for example? Or how loyal was a remake to the original movie? Just a movie about a movie. And, and I think that, that you tip your hand a little in terms, and that's okay. Everyone's allowed to have their own taste. I certainly do. Um, but you tip your hand a little, and this is a subjective interpretation where for you, what feels good or what is pleasurable in terms of perception is loyalty to a source uh, of the material. Um, but that's only one interpretation. Some people appreciate a film which is nothing like the text, which absolutely subverts the text so that they can compare them. And in terms of the, 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 the documentary nature, JFK, um, you know, there's, there's been, uh, this is what's called prosthetic memory um, by a, a, I think it's Alison Landsberg who wrote this theory. Anyways, um, there, there's been research done that, that most people at the millennial age or younger, and even at my age, I'm in my early 50s. I know I look great. You can say it. Um, even at my age, maybe my generation and younger, um, who most of their, because we live in a visual culture now, most of their understanding of history is taken from film. And the, the primary example given is that most people my age or younger, uh, most of what they know about the Vietnam War comes from platoon, full metal jacket, um, uh, Forrest Gump, and Rambo. Not one of which has, a, even though Forrest Gump actually uses documentary footage, it's then redocumented into a narrative framework. And we see this in the morphing of JFK in the movie talking to him. None of this happened. 
Um, and so these are these are not um, appropriate ways to understand history. If you're loyal to a notion of there being a true factual history. Now, the problem, I think, with these films is that they reinterpret a troubling political moment, global political moment, in favor of a certain perspective. Often it's America recuperating its embarrassment in that global conflict, which is just a proxy war. It was a, it was a Cold War proxy war. Um, understanding history that way is, is fine as long as it, it doesn't have these important ideological implications. But you're absolutely right. It's interesting and maybe problematic for that reason that most people today uh, most of their understanding of history is from cinema. What I know about ancient Rome has largely to do with Elizabeth Taylor and Rex Harrison in the movie Cleopatra, which is almost certainly entirely wrong, <laughs> at least from the perspective of a, sing a single factual truth uh, that we might call documentary history. There is a issue when it comes to like some of those documentary stuff. Like I know a lot about the Vietnam War. I'm friends with Peter Kuznick from Untold History of the United States, who really kind of focuses on a more. And I keep a more balanced approach. I've talked to both sides on the Vietnam War. Like even if you talk about the influence of like, let's take it a very cultural movie, which is Pearl Harbor. Did you know that we had to go overseas to Japan and show them some footage for the final cut of Pearl Harbor? Because in one of the scenes that they wanted out specifically was in – I think it's – I forgot who the woman is that's talking on the ship. But she starts talking about something, and then in the background, there's a person that gets lit up into smithereens basically by a machine gun. That's not in the final cut because Japan was like, cut that. You don't need it. That's extra. There's a lot of stuff in there that does not make Japan look good at all. It's a very – it makes you feel various sense of patriotism but even movies like platoon even movies like jfk even movies that might have a certain slant at the government's even the fred hampton thing those are all files that you can look at in the fbi website because whenever the a film gets made about the government the government is going to talk to you at some point and want to know what direction this movie is going into and i've learned this about the intelligence agencies of calling jfk and the movie platoon oliver stone's embarrassment to us and it's when an agency is talking about you like that as a specific person, it sounds to seem less like the government works for the people and more of a government doing its own little thing. And that's kind of when I had a problem with the Fred Hampton thing is that when those are displayed in certain directions, we know a lot about COINTELPRO. We know a lot about this. Fred Hampton in that movie, the person who plays him is in his 40s. Fred Hampton was 21 years old. You know, that's a different impact. It doesn't seem like much, but when the guy has full on facial hair and, you know, it looks a lot older and a lot bigger you start to lose the aspect of what it was a kid. My, I mean, younger than me and I'm no big guy, but you know, you lose a message in that. And that's kind of when I have yeah, a little no, bit of a right. problem. Well, I agree with that. This is again, um, the conventions of stereotypes. So what do the signifiers of a beard and, and a little bit older person, what do they rob of the uh, let's in this example, call it innocence of the original character and who's being vilified and who's why. And I think, you know, what's really important and what you observe there, Robbie is, the political economy of film. Um, we always need to, to cast a critical eye on who it is that is controlling the representations. Um, you know, you take a movie like Hunt for Red October um, and almost every film that has a significant American military presence in it um, is vetted 
by the military in terms of how much cooperation the military will give in letting them shoot on site or shoot in a helicopter, things like that, um, almost without fail, uh, there's a history of the, the, I'm sure this is global, but the American military is the one the research has been done on, the American military um, making significant demands on um, the representation of the military in the movie always has to be in a positive light. There's almost never any critique of war as a social phenomenon. Anarchy. Anarchy. <laughs> yeah, you could have that. That's um, what I'm trying to do. And, and so uh, the political economy is interesting, whether it's, you know, and, and turning to Japan. Um, this is a, this is a, a, it's a politically fraught example. So it's terrain. You, you have to be careful when you, you talk about, um, you know, Japan has every reason to be wary um, it's it's history, you know. The 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 uh, the war crime of the atomic bombs um, is so profound. It's like the Holocaust that that history has become um, incredibly uh, it's monocular, and that's okay. I'm not saying that there's not merit in that. We do need to to be careful with the way we understand history. Um, but, you know, there's other examples, uh, you know, the, the Germans didn't win the Second World War. And there's all sorts of talk. Well, what if the Americans had not won, um, you know, the uh, won or not succeeded in the, the Middle Eastern campaigns? We might have a different history written in 100 years. And the importance here, for example, um, what's overlooked often in these, these histories, let's take, you know, Pearl Harbor. Um, Japan has every reason to be wary of representations of Japan. And you've got the internment. Um, George Takai has been vocal about misrepresentation in this regard. Um, but, you know, Japan was um, on some level complicit with the Germans. Now, if we want to reduce history of the good guys and the bad guys, the Germans are the bad guys. Yeah, but America would be bad too, wouldn't they? Because I mean, America didn't get involved into the Second World War until they had to. I mean, they knew the Holocaust well, and all that I, stuff was going on for a while before that. And there's back to problematic categories at best. America's um, isolationist policy until Pearl Harbor was—it's a historical fact. Again, worth for nobody's good. That's all you got to say is nobody's good. I get that a hundred percent. But, you know, Japan had the atomic bombs dropped. There was the internment. These were crimes committed against Japan and Japanese people living in diaspora, for sure. But, you know, Japan was working with the Germans. Um, traditional military campaigns were not working. You know, you get this, this stereotype of the kamikaze. And um, America, as much as it might be considered a war crime, they warned Japan again and again. You know, we've, we've got the bomb. Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night is a real thing. If you've ever never heard of it before, but they had a submarine attack on U.S. soil that was going to be in off the coast of Cal San Francisco with these missiles. And these missiles had uh, up to 150 million, I swear to you, fleas that were filled with bubonic plague. Now, I don't know if you know how hard it is to kill a flea, but it is damn near impossible sometimes unless you have like a lot of things. So imagine landing that on U.S. soil, then having this bomb explode with all these fleas filled with bubonic plague. All of it. I mean, that could have ended a lot of stuff. But once we dropped the bombs, that plan was canceled. So there was a lot of stuff. And this is what kind of shows about like everybody's kind of the villain is that everyone's got a gun to each other's heads. 
And like when you understand history, and this is why I never take a full on stance against America's all evil or all this stuff. I'm like, no, people are just bad all around. And it's like, how do we find a, a, a balance in it? it? It sucks to be like that. But look, I mean, I take the I, I like the people, the benefit of the doubt. But whenever someone starts demonizing one complete side and like USA is the 100 percent devil, I was like, look, man, everybody's up to their own nefarious stuff. And you can just talk to an independent historian who studies that specific location. I've done that to try and find the balanced approach. And let me tell you, you just get to this point where you're just like throw your hands up and take your hand through your uh, your hair like Kramer from Seinfeld and just be like, you know what? Everyone kind of sucks, man. <laughs> I hate to but say it. It's a bit, it's a bit pessimistic, but um, and I certainly don't want to go down the rabbit hole of you know vilifying Japan. That's not what I meant to suggest, and, and or validating America as victim. I certainly don't want to suggest that either, and certainly I don't want to validate uh, American um, foreign policy, particularly from a military perspective. But, but my point is that the documentary record is more nuanced and. Um, the representation of good guys and bad guys uh, is always a function of the political economy of, of whose interests are being defended, whether these are broad ideological interests or whether they're particularly corporate or particularly military interests. And this is always already the case. Uh, we, we can't escape the, the framing of narratives from this perspective. And, and again, this in, in terms of this, you know, your um, disenchantment with films that that maybe are not as documentary accurate, documentarily accurate as you would prefer them to be. The fact of the matter is, um, I, I think you you might be overlooking the, the very motives. We would be foolish not to understand that the purpose of, for example, a Hollywood film, using Hollywood as a synecdoche for the entire corporate industry of filmmaking that's coming out of largely the United States. From that one industry, there's industries Bollywood all over the world, China now, uh, but this one is to make money, to make money, and in order to make money, you need to sell to a lot of people, especially with the economics of filmmaking. Uh, a twenty million dollar film needs to make a hundred million in order to break even, and so um, you have to present fodder that is largely feel good. People can't be offended by, it. and this is the problem. This is the critique of wokeness. Um, and, and again, so, so we need to look at who's who are the puppet masters, who's controlling the representation, and what are the motives? If the motives are to make money, then nobody has any particular interest in your investment in documentary truthfulness. JFK, if it's stuck only to the facts, might not have been as fun a movie to watch, and then it wouldn't have made its money back. Uh, same with Forrest Gump. Now, and these movies aren't evil. But uh, I think we do need to uh, recognize that, that entertainment is an industry and, and the profit motive underpins these doc documentary representations. Even a documentary film is frequently largely biased uh, in, in favor of one argument and or in favor of a presentation that is going to be more spectacular and entertaining than strictly watching a surveillance video. That's pure documentary. You know, surveillance video is pure documentary without any editorial, without anything missed, without anything framed. You'd need a, a wide angle. Um, but there's no such thing, I think, as a documentary, at least not one that's done well, um, that doesn't um, openly tout a specific opinion. Whether that opinion has merit or not is not the point. The point is uh, these films have to make money because they're from a, a capitalist, a, a capital intensive 
production environment. This is the great thing about independent films. Maybe the film you're making. Um, now JFK that, film. So hopefully if I go by the documentation, it's going to be good because you just, you just said. Now that we have the technology it. and the resources, you, you've got a, a veritable archive available just on YouTube, for example. Digital searches are, are much richer. Digital archives are much richer. And everybody with a smartphone, which in uh, a certain level of, of beyond the digital divide of privilege, everyone has. Anyone can basically make a movie that that is almost Hollywood quality, and we're not constrained as much as we used to. But the problem is that these big corporations dominate the distribution and uh, exhibition markets. And so, sure, you could make the most um, documentary truthful film ever made. I've never said this on the podcast. I didn't want to blow the whistle on it. But to be honest, I, I really want to say one thing about it, which is I'm just giving you from point A to point B. I'm not doing anything that all the other JFK films you can watch have done, which is trying to find the who and the why. I'm tired of that. I've been in, I've been in this for a year now, researching over 60,000 documents for this thing. Um, you just want to do the what? Not the who or the why, just the what. No, I just want to show you this is what from point A when it started, and this is what we know now after 60 years worth of documentation that's come out that is really kind well, of – the just... history of the history. That's yeah. very interesting. I mean, come well, on. There's plenty of stuff in there. you'll get some hits on YouTube. It's going <laughs> to be that's free. Just... That's another thing I'm doing is everyone that's ever gotten a critique about it, something they made was that they made money off of it. I'm just – this is all 100%. I went with phone service out this month and last month and the month before that all because I was putting money into this thing because I don't want to charge a cent. I just want to give carry a lot of names, and I think the top film has twenty four researchers in it, and I have eighty something, and that includes Robert Blakey, that includes the people that were there and that investigated it themselves. So I mean, hey, give it a good historical representation. Hopefully, it'll be good. Uh, that's also how I would make a film. So if you've got my personality so far, this show, you understand where it's going to go in that aspect of things. Well, I'll I'll, I'll keep my eyes open for it, Robbie when you finally get your film done. I'm I'm making a horror movie. What is it called? Uh, I'm not going to say because I don't know yet, but I'm working with students on making a horror movie just for the sake of itself. And I don't even know if I'll distribute it. I'll let, I'll send a copy to you if I ever bother. Please, with it. please do. I, I know uh, David, you've given me enough of your time, man. I'm sorry, man. We went all I'm, over yeah, the I'm reaching the end of my, uh, to, to be a little garish, perhaps I'm reaching the end of my bladder, shall we call it? I uh, so is there anything, Robbie, you wanted to ask of me before I, I depart for the afternoon? No, if you want to let everybody know where they can uh, find your links, any other places where people can find any of your work, um, you can say off your links and I'll make sure to link it in the description too. Um, yeah, sure. I might be able to send that to you off the top of my head. Uh, the only web page I significantly have is my uh, profile on the University of Leicester uh, website. Um, other than that, um, you you would not hurt yourself to do a Google search, a Google Scholar search of my name as an author if you're interested in looking at. Um, I've been working on horror video games. Like I said, I've got some Zombieland stuff, Apocalypse films, Star Wars. Uh, if any of that interests you from the perspectives uh, largely that I have uh, pontificated with you here today. Um, that would be where people could look to uh, discover more in that arena. Well, I'm going to link all that in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.